Let us pray. Come, Holy Spirit, and fill the hearts of your faithful and kindle within us the fire of your love. And may my words and our hearts together glorify you, O God, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Uh, you probably know that as we prepare for worship each week, uh, we plan some things quite a bit before Sunday morning. <laughs> and one of those things is to select a scripture for Sunday and also to uh, pick a sermon title. Well, <laughs> uh, for a lot of pastors, when they thought about this Sunday, they also were very aware of Tuesday. I mean, how could you not be aware? I mean, the election, the midterm elections permeated everything. I mean, you could not, you literally could not escape it. If you're on social media, you can't escape it. If you're watching TV, you can't escape it. I mean, you, you literally have to sort of cut, your, cut yourself off from newspapers and any kind of communication, public communication. I mean, and so that weighed heavy for me as I thought about this Sunday's sermon. So, so what are we supposed to talk about, really? You know, how do we do this? Do I just completely avoid Tuesday? Or do we actually talk about it? So I intentionally picked the sermon title for today, Hope for the Hopeless, because you know what? It cuts both ways. So if the election has come out kind of how you hoped it would, there's hope for the hopeless. I mean, what that means is, wow, uh, things have happened, and there's some good things that I was hoping would happen, and so I can now be a part of making a difference. I can have the spiritual, emotional, physical energy to make a difference. If things didn't cut the way you had hoped, or maybe didn't cut all the way you had hoped, uh, then there's still hope for the hopeless, for those who have felt uh, left behind by whatever happened on Tuesday, well, and that is still happening. You know, they're still counting votes somewhere in America. Um, so there's real intentionality for me about this sermon title, and and the real intentionality is that we know that we live in a world and in a country where it's truth for both, right? There are people, people who are deeply disappointed in this election, and there are people who are relatively happy. And so it's important for us to talk about, then, so how are we to be now? And I think uh, the prophet Isaiah, in, in this part of the book of the prophet Isaiah has some important things to say to us about it. Now, before we can get to where we are in today's reading, we have to do the backstory. And the backstory is really, really important for us. Because you see, the backstory into which Isaiah is preaching is that Judah, as you recall, in, Palest in Palestine there were two kingdoms. Israel, the northern king kingdom, and Judah, the southern kingdom, where Jerusalem 
is. And Israel had already been conquered, and so Judah remained. But Israel was the stronger of the kingdoms. And here is Judah. And, uh, and, and what happens is that Judah is invaded by Babylon, and they are conquered. And the people were forcibly, literally forcibly removed from their country. The people who were healthy and strong were forcibly removed and taken to Babylon. And the people that weren't were left to die. And some of them were killed anyway in the conquering, by the conquering uh, country, right? It's a bleak landscape in Palestine. Moreover, their holiest of holy places was taken over. I mean, I don't, we don't even, I don't think we even have a comparison to this. You know, uh, maybe the National Cathedral in Washington, D.C. is run over. Um, so, I, I mean, I think our closest uh, remembrance is that, that comes to us is the attack on 9-11. I mean, that's the kind of destruction that they experienced. Only their whole, the whole of the people were taken, you know, were conquered and taken away. And that exile lasted for 70 years. And in that 70 years, the people of Judah wept and they prayed and they fasted, and they tried to make peace with where they were, but always they longed to return to their home, as would happen with us, I think. They are bone-weary, exhausted from their exile, an exile whose losses and fears permeate every breath they take. An exile that literally overturns the very ground of their being, family, land, temple, culture. Exhaustion and confusion of the people only deepens. They are oppressed. They are heartbroken. They suffer injustice. They struggle in body, mind, and spirit. And while some of them die there in that foreign land, for various just age, a lot of them who knew Judah are still alive 70 years later. And even if they're not, we all know today what a particular trauma does to people, even those who become our children experience some level of trauma, right? They, it's carried. And so this is where we are, and into this despair, this hopelessness, Isaiah speaks. And what is probably most striking about this passage is the way in which the prophet describes God's involvement with and devotion to these people, these oppressed, broken-hearted people. I mean, the language is soaring. 
It speaks of everything being made new. It speaks of joy and rejoicing. It speaks of a new dream and a new people. Be glad, the prophet says, on behalf of God. Be glad and rejoice forever in what I am creating. For I'm about to create Jerusalem as a joy. And, okay, Jerusalem is the holy place, right? So... Let's make that ours, because this is how this scripture works. It's not just Jerusalem. I am going to do a new thing. I am going to do it in the United States. I'm going to do it in Texas. I'm going to do it at New Church. I'm going to do a new thing across the board. And I will rejoice and I will delight in my people. No more shall the sound of weeping be heard in it or the cry of distress. Now, we know. We know that the people of Judah returned to their home. And it all wasn't all okay. <laughs> I mean, but at this point... The prophet Isaiah is speaking the truth about the dream God has and God holds, right? And still God holds, even though you and I know that even after elections, things don't just magically get better because we have to participate in God's new creation. We have to be partners with God in this new creation. We have to co-create with God the dream that God is dreaming. So this is not a general promise to a nation in exile, but a specific description of all that God's love will mean to all people in their daily lives. If we were to read this passages between 19 and 24, there's a description of how people will um, build their homes and they will have their vineyards and they will create a new life for themselves. I mean, uh, it's just a, read the whole thing. It's a beautiful scripture. It is a promise that extends from infants to elders. It is a promise of God's ongoing provision. In any context, this would be a wonderful vision of peace, of shalom, of prosperity. But to Isaiah's hearers, that first spoken word, a nation that has faced slavery and exile, that promise is even greater. And so should be for us if we are suffering. This nation of refugees are reminded of a God who longs to make them new. I, I need you to hear this that God longs to make you and me and all of creation new. God's deepest longing is for this shalom, this peace, but a peace that is not just a cessation of violence and war, but a wholeness, a fullness, a full mind, body, and soul peace. 
This is God's desire to all generations. And so we are included in that dream. Isaiah's words actually are a powerful reminder that God not just hears, not just understands the challenges these people face and that we face, but feels these things and longs to meet them in these difficult places as they open their lives to God's help. This is the promise for us as well. Now, do you know the parallels that are here between uh, Judah and us? Oh, yeah, we haven't been hauled away to a different country. But haven't we kind of been living in an exile? I mean, for all the talk of the American dream, it's felt in these last few years as if that dream has gone up in smoke. I mean, you know, I, I, I say this a lot of Sundays. I enumerate for us the exile we're in. You know, that it doesn't feel for a lot of people. I mean, I think they say in some of the polls that over 75% of Americans are fearful about the future. I mean, that's a huge number of people to be carrying this fear. And, um, and when we're so divided, as we are, in our politics, our schools, our churches, and even our own families, uh, it, it, the, the landscape is bleak. And no matter the outcome of this midterm election, we may go back to the bickering and division and the struggles in our daily living. We will still be faced with a pandemic that seems to morph just when we think we've gotten it under control. We are still facing violence. We are hearing of wars and rumors of wars and more. And the risk for those of us for whom the election has turned out maybe better than we expected would be to, for us to fall into a half sleep of things as they've always been. And the risk for people for whom this election did not turn out the way they had hoped, it would be twofold, that they would either become so discouraged that, that we would stop engaging in any way in our country, or that we would engage with the ferocity and a denial that would create destruction and leave a broken path behind us. Wednesday at our new church book club, Carrie Johnson, I mean, we were talking, we were tearing it up. <laughs> and uh, Carrie Johnson finally said, well, you know, sometimes I feel like we're living in limbo. Do you remember limbo? Well, if you're Roman Catholic, you probably do. Well, because that, that was a, a theological concept of where, uh, of a life after, a sort of empty gray life after death, you know, uh, limbo. A re it was considered a region on the border of heaven and hell, a place, a state of oblivion to which people are relegated and cast aside and forgotten. Oh my goodness, doesn't that sound a little bit like where we have been, in a kind of limbo. Well, 
I could continue to carry on about all this, but I'm going to stop here. Lest we all get so depressed, we can't sing the song after the sermon. But on Wednesday night, we also spoke of the promise found in the scripture, and it was startling to me how quickly our moods shifted. As we spoke about God, a God who envisions an age of justice, a peaceable king, kingdom where, you know, the violent and the peaceful sit down together. You know, the lamb and the wolf sit down in a shared space. It paints a picture of this full shalom, this fullness of peace in each of us. And according to the Apostle Paul, we are given a foretaste of this shalom and the new creation in the resurrection of Jesus. Oh, here we are. We're back at the Paschal mystery. And what I want to tell you about this is that this Paschal mystery starts with our ancestors who are the Jews and who celebrated the Passover, which was a liberation festival. It was about being liberated by God and given a new place, a new home, a new place to be. And it's also the paschal mystery of the resurrection of Jesus that we can only grasp a blink of in this life. So I, I, I'm going to ask you to take a look around you because there is always new life being created, right? A grain of wheat is crushed and becomes bread for a table. The grapes are crushed and become juice and wine for a table that becomes life-giving. Not just at this table, but of any table. And so I, I love the metaphors found in this meal and in the Passover meal, and I, I love all these metaphors, and so I was trying to come up with one of my own. I thought about this and thought about this. I thought about it for several mornings this last week what can a metaphor be and then I thought well I'm going to take a chicken egg as my metaphor because chicken eggs are you know they, they do several things like you crack them and break them open and they can become a very high protein food that sustains life right or a chicken egg can be cracked open from the inside out by the life inside it. So I want to tell you, there's a reason why we hunt, hide and hunt Easter eggs on Easter, because it is the great Paschal mystery. It is the mystery of our lives. It is the way we are to live. It, it, it is the truth of our faith and our siblings who are Jewish. The truth of our faith is that there is life, there is death, and there is new life. God says, I am about to create new heavens and a new earth. Listen, the former things shall not be remembered or come to mind. Be glad and rejoice forever in what I am creating, this creating that God is constantly doing. And so I want this week, along with your, your, hope, your hope journal that you're going to do, right? Everybody's nodding. Yes, yes, I'm going to do it. You too. Um... <laughs> I, I'm going to ask you 
to awaken to all the new things that are happening. It can be, it can be in your family, it can be in your garden, it can be in your job, it can be wherever you are, the new things that God is doing. And, and, and so just to give you a boost, I'm going to give you some of those new things. Today, well, actually yesterday, in yesterday's New York Times, there was an article that talks about that in Puerto Rico, the hurricanes are beginning to teach the people how to feed themselves. But get this, in Ukraine, there are architects who are currently planning for the cities when the bombing stops. And in Brazil, they are beginning to create a national mu museum, well, rebuild their national museum and its collection without colonialism. And in California, and I had no idea about this, so I really went and looked it up a lot. The Los Angeles River runs in the heart of Los Angeles, and it's solid concrete. And now they have gotten the great architect Gary, who is designing for them parks and landscapes to redesign this river so that it will come to life because we all know that our children need parks to play in. And you know what? We do too. This is the promise of God. This is the hope. Our God is constantly, constantly making all things new and we are invited to be a part of that promise today and every day. This is the good news of the gospel proclaimed by the prophet Isaiah. Amen? Amen. Amen.